0: Hello, hello. Welcome to church. Welcome to church today. If you're joining us today, if you're a guest for the first time, I want to welcome you guys to church. We're glad you could join us at Rock Fellowship in observance of our Sabbath worship. Um, This week, we're currently in part three of a series that we've been going through um, for a while now. And the title of the series is Last Week. We're currently in part three of our series, Last Week. And it's a series that follows um, just chronologically, roughly, the life of Jesus. The last week of Jesus leading to his death and resurrection. And again, the, the, central, the sort of central theme for this series so far has been not so much, there's no real like one-topic theme that's going to be covered throughout the series. It's less of that. It's just we're just following the life of Jesus leading up to his death and resurrection. And the kind of thing we want everyone that's listening to this series to experience is, is this idea that Jesus is awesome, that this series can be one that glorifies Jesus, makes Jesus look awesome, and shows him in the best possible light And that you walk away from every part of this series thinking, wow, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is amazing. Just a quick recap, if you weren't here with us last week or the week before that. last, Last week's last week message was on the triumphant entry. We talked about the clear beginning of Jesus last week. We're on Sunday. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it's almost like a parade. And people are like praising him, and it's amazing. Hosanna, we got the palm trees, we got the coats. And it's really just an epic, awesome, celebratory scene of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And last week's last week message, we had three stories. Um, the clearing of the temple... Jesus' comments on Jerusalem, and Jesus' interesting interaction with a fig tree. And again, uh, Pastor Chris premised this by saying it was a scary thing, a sad thing, and a strange or a weird thing. We talked about how every single one of these stories that takes place after the triumphant entry has this central theme. And the central theme of these stories is revealed in Jesus' rebuke of the fig tree, which again is the most strange of the three stories. Jesus, what do you have against the fig tree? And, the, and the, the main theme that Jesus is rebuking, not only the people in the temple, but the inhabitants of Jerusalem, past and present, as well as the fig tree, is that he looked around in Jerusalem, and all he saw, he saw so much of all leaves and no fruits. All leaves, no fruit. You guys have the outside down. You look like you would be good. You look like you have everything down, but on co- closer inspection, There is no fruit. There is no goodness. The Spirit of God is not here. The temple outside, yes, the processes are all there. People are doing the right things. But when you go inside, you see the money changers and people capitalizing on this system. And so Jesus rebukes all these people and says, you guys are all, all leaf, no fruit. Now this week, um, I just want to give a little bit of context as to where we are in the story of the last week. If you've ever tried to follow the story of Jesus' last week throughout the Gospels, It gets a little tricky past a certain point. So there's definitely a clear beginning. On Sunday, Jesus enters. There's a triumphant entry. There's a palm tree. And he clears the temple in three of the Gospels. Um, The Gospel of John is a little bit quirky. We'll talk about a little bit later. So those two things definitely happen. And then timeline gets a little bit hazy because there's a bunch of different teachings that Jesus has after that moment. And then it clears up again once you get to the Last Supper. Okay, once you're in the Last Supper things start to clear up again. All right, he has Last Supper. He has communion. He washes the feet, He goes to the garden. He prays. He gets arrested. And then you know the story from there. But everything kind of in between the clearing of the temple and the Last Supper can get, at least timeline-wise, a little bit tricky. But the bulk of it is essentially Jesus has a lot of teachings. He has rebukes. He has some prophecy. He has teachings of parables. And basically, he has these moments where he drops wisdom on the people around him. Again, understanding he doesn't have that much time left. So I picked, this is kind of the area that we're in today. So chronologically, some of the stuff that we talk about today, it kind of blends in, could have happened the same day roughly with some of the stuff that Pastor Chris happened last week. But just so we have a frame of reference as to where we are, Jesus has cleared the temple, but we're not quite yet at the Last Supper. This is kind of in the weekdays in between. Um, and the passage for today, the reason I picked this part of uh, Jesus' last week is because I feel like this passage. Is where we really see Jesus acknowledge that this is the beginning of the end. Like we are in the end game now. I understand the significance. Because up until this point in the series, we have Jesus entering on a donkey and having this huge parade. We had the cursing of the fig tree, a little bit weird. We had Jesus' interaction with Jerusalem and weeping over Jerusalem. And we had Jesus clearing the temple. And we haven't really seen Jesus explicitly, at least so far in the series, explicitly talk about what's going to happen at the end of this week. And at a certain point, the readers, you may be reading, and you're like, well, does he even really know what's going on? How come all these things are happening at the beginning of, you know, the end of his week on earth? And the question that arises for, for the reader or those of you that are joining us for this series is, well, does he even know? Like, does he understand that this is his last week? Does he know the significance of the events? Of this last week, and this is where the passage that we, come, that we read today is going to come into play. But before we get into word, I invite you to join me in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father Lord, I thank you again for the privilege and the opportunity for sharing your word today. I thank you for the gift that you've given us in the Sabbath in a community where we can come together both online and in person and worship your name. Father, I ask that as we just sang, that for the purposes and the contents of this sermon, you become the firm foundation, Father, and that everything in this sermon glorifies you and the goodness of God and who you are and what you've done for us, Father. I ask that this sermon be something that glorifies and lifts you up, that all men and all women can be drawn towards you, to your perfect character and what you've done for us. Father, may your will be done at Rock Fellowship as it is done in heaven. Praise in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Just a quick kind of, again, context into the passage we're looking at today. It's found in John chapter 12. And there's one thing you gotta know about the book of John. Um, The first four books of the Bible are commonly referred to as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them has their own twist, their own perspective on essentially the biography of Jesus. Different aspects of Jesus' life. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the most in common with one another. They're not the same, But you'll find a lot of commonalities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, on the other hand, those first three are generally referred to as the synoptic gospels. John, on the other hand, is a little bit quirky. He's a little bit different, has a different perspective. And because of that, there are a lot of stories you see in the book of John, a lot of teachings that you don't find anywhere else in the other books, such as the wedding in Cana, the woman at the well, Lazarus, the washing of the feet, and including this passage here today. John chapter 12, the latter half of John chapter 12 they're going to look at, is another kind of unique aspect of Jesus' life, a perspective that John the disciple has. And this is the passage just following Jesus' triumphant entry. So timeline, at least in the book of John, the timeline's a little quirky, quirky in this book. But Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and after he enters Jerusalem, the palm trees and the hosanna and the parades, this is the next thing John talks about. In his gospel. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this passage gives us a little bit of insight into Jesus' mindset on that last week. Like, what was Jesus thinking of? What was going through his head leading up to this very like the climax of his life? And the passage, before we begin the reading the passage, it begins with some Greek foreigners, some Gentiles who are in town to celebrate the Passover. So these are Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles, that are here to celebrate the Passover. They're here in the temple, and as they're here, they know that Jesus is in town. Now, remember, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is like, he's the person you want to, he's like the trendiest person in Jerusalem, and everyone is in Jerusalem at the time to celebrate the Passover. So, these people have heard about Jesus, and they're like, we would love to meet Jesus. So, they approach one of, the, one of his disciples, but they do it in kind of a strategic fashion. They approach Philip, because they feel like, oh, Philip has a Greek name, we're Greek, maybe he can hook us up. Hey, man, can you, can you create some space where we can meet? Jesus. He approached Philip, and as Philip is telling this to Jesus, uh, John chapter 12, verses 23 to 26, we'll have that on screen. This is Jesus' response to him hearing um, about these people. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants will also be. My Father will all know the one who serves me. And this first line right here, if we go to the first slide, um, the previous slide of this, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the first indicator for the readers, at least in the book of John, that this is it. That this is, this is the beginning of the end. That Jesus understands that this week is where the climax of his life takes place. And in a way, this passage and the following verses kind of encapsulate this feeling of like everything is coming together. And the reason I say that is in this passage and the following verses, there are so many references to other points of Jesus' ministry in the next few verses. And it really adds all these cool little nuggets of this happened. Oh, and it's very similar and apparel to something that happened earlier in Jesus' life. Or this happens and it's a foreshadowing of something that will happen later in his life. Really gives a sense of... This is as everything, this is Jesus' life kind of being wrapped up. All these things are happening to bring fulfillment. For instance, at the very beginning of this passage, as I just told you, we're we're told that there are these Greek foreigners, these Greek Gentiles, that come to see Jesus at the end of his life. These foreigners, they're not from here, they're not ethnically Jewish, but they're God-fearing, and they hear about Jesus, hear about the Messiah, right, this king that has come, and they want to meet him. So at the end of his life, these foreigners come from the east, to to lay witness to the end of Jesus' life. Very similarly, at the very beginning of Jesus' life, we have these wise men from the East, these foreigners, not Jewish people, people that are not of these people, came from the East to lay witness to the birth of Jesus. And there's a really strong parallel where at the beginning of Jesus' life, foreigners from the East come because they follow a star and they, they, they feel like something important is happening. And then at the very end of Jesus' life, there's a specific mention of foreigners, people not of the Jewish nation come, that are God-fearing, to witness the things that will happen at the end of Jesus' life. And then again, in the passage where we read, Jesus begins the monologue with the phrase, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When you read throughout the book of John, there are three other mentions of Jesus saying, the hour has not yet come, the time is not yet right. The first time we hear it is in the wedding of Cana, where he has to turn water into wine because he has the wedding and they've run out of wine, and his mom comes up to him, and Jesus come on, do your thing, We're running out of alcohol, running out of wine, like, can you, can you save this party? And he says, my time has not yet come, but okay, fine. And then later on in the book, um, chapters 7 and 8, there are times when Jesus is saying some controversial things in front of some very important people, and he's riling people up. The Pharisees are getting upset, the people in the temple are getting upset, and they're, they're going to rush him, but the Bible says they could not touch him and they could not seize him for his time had not yet come. Despite all the controversy he was stirring, the time to take Jesus, the time to really get on him as the Pharisees were planning, that time had not yet come. However, now, in John chapter 12, at the beginning of the last week of his life, Jesus acknowledges that the hour now has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's sort of an acknowledgement on Jesus' part that he understands, all right, I understand what's happening. We're in the end game now. This is the beginning of the end. I know what happens at the end of this week. And it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. If you continue reading on the passage, um, at the end of the passage, it brings another parallel into place. If you can continue on um, in the next section of Scripture. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. The voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Again, the parallels and references to other parts of Jesus' ministry kind of continue here. When you hear that Jesus crying out to God, and then there's an audible voice from heaven that comes down. Throughout the Gospels, there are only two other times when, you hear the, when human beings are able to hear the audible voice of God. Once is at the Transfiguration, where Jesus and a very close group of disciples witness uh, Moses and Elijah coming next to him and Jesus kind of transformed in his divine appearance. But the other more iconic moment is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, where just as he begins his ministry and he's baptized by John the Baptist and he comes out of the water, the people around him are able to witness and hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And there's this validation towards Jesus' ministry. And then now, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, once again, we hear the voice from heaven come down for the last time, saying, I will glorify my name, something that God would do through the actions of Jesus towards the end of his week. The last parallel happens... um, In the next passage, Jesus explains what everyone here heard. He said, the voice is not for your benefit. It was was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this earth. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. And this is kind of like a foreshadowing and kind of a throwback reference to something that happens earlier in Scripture. The more obvious foreshadowing is, the end of this week, Jesus will die and be lifted up and will draw all men towards himself But earlier in the book of John, actually in John chapter 2 or 3, Jesus makes another reference where he talks about the snake that was lifted up. So earlier on in the Old Testament, there's a story where the Israelites are in the wilderness and these snakes come out and they're biting the Israelites. And the antidote for this, God tells Moses, is to get a bronze snake and lift it up. And everyone that looks at that snake is healed of the poison and they're saved. And earlier on in the book of John, Jesus makes a reference that in the same way that Moses lifts up that bronze snake... I will be like that bronze snake, and I'll be lifted up and draw all men up to myself. So you have this kind of epic compilation of all these different references and moments of foreshadowing that... I don't know how everyone feels about this, but as someone that when you're studying this and reading the Bible, for me, I got really excited. Like, oh, my goodness. You see all these interconnected moments where, like, Jesus, it's very clear that the life that Jesus lived was not just some dilly-dallying. He was not just flying by the seat of his pants. He wasn't just winging life. He had a very intentional moment in his life where everything he did, there was a purpose, there was a goal in mind. He had a mission where everything he did, the life of Jesus in and of itself was the fulfillment of prophecy that began in chapter 3 of the Bible. where just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God makes a promise. There will be a seed from this womb that will come, and the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. Basically, God's way of saying, look, Adam and Eve... You're gone now, but I'm coming for you. I will rescue you. And the life and death of Jesus is the fulfillment of all these different prophecies that you find through scripture. And for me, it was really exciting kind of seeing these moments and making these connections through all the things that Jesus was doing, and especially in this really, really short passage. And I feel like for all of these little moments, again, we have a lot of like, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, like, wise men came from the east, and at the end, people come from the west. At the very beginning, you hear the voice of God, and at the end, you hear the voice of God. And all these moments where Jesus is making these references, it feels like it adds to the kind of climactic experience where it feels like everything is slowly starting to come together, that Jesus is starting to fulfill all these prophecies and make all these references. And in the midst of all these references and parables and parallels that he makes, Jesus reveals to his followers the purpose the reason he came down to earth, why he came, what the mission even was, and the reason this week is so important for him. And it reveals this in the first first passage we read. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life? Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servants also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And then Jesus reveals to his followers, listen, I am that kernel. I am that kernel of seed that must die so that life can be formed. I am the kernel of seed that will give up his life so that the harvest can happen. And as he approaches the end of this week, his focus is on the reason he came to earth in the first place which was to become that kernel of seed that fell to the ground and died, and that his death would equate to our life. And you know that Jesus understands this because, again, he says later on in verse 27, now my soul is deeply troubled. A foreshadowing of something he would say later on. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring bring glory to your name. And in this moment, you see a a small foreshadowing of what Jesus would say in a few days in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's really feeling the weight of everything he was going to go through. As he's feeling the stress and the weight of the, of the world sitting on his shoulders. This chapter in John chapter 12 is a small foreshadowing where Jesus reveals, I get it. I understand the weight and the heaviness of what's going to happen to me during this week. I'm telling you, I understand this. And I'm feeling stressed and I'm distressed, but should I cave? No, because I remember the reason I came here to begin with. I remember the mission I came for is to become that kernel of seed so that in my death, there can be life in everyone else. And in a very real sense, he reveals to the readers of the gospel that he understands the weight and difficulty that was going to come in the following days, the pain and suffering that he will have to endure. And I can't help but ask the question. I imagine if I was a disciple there or someone that's reading through the story for the first time, the question that naturally comes to mind is, Jesus, you understand, you clearly know what's going to happen, right? Even now your soul is troubled and you're distressed as you anticipate all these things. The question becomes, why are you doing this? Why, is this? why is this worthwhile for you? What are you enduring all of this for? A few weeks ago, I went down to Southern California for some of the classes that I take um, twice a year. And I took two classes, um, and I was really excited for one and not as excited for the other. And you will tell by the, the title of these classes. The first class was called um, Family, Marriage, and Interpersonal Relationships. And I was like, oh, that could be cool. And, like, the vibe I got was, like, it would be about like, counseling and relationship. And I was like, I'm a youth pastor. Like, this could be very, very relevant in the way I interact, you know, with the youth and manage their relationships, all that stuff. And the second class I was much less looking forward to. And the name of that class was The Doctrine of Salvation. And I was like, boo, that sounds so much more boring. I feel like it's gonna be a lot of notes. I feel like it's gonna be harder. I feel like the first class you can just kinda like, oh my goodness, I, I have friends, I have interpersonal relationships, I have family, A plus. But I feel like second class is gonna be like, oh, a lot more dreary. But actually what ended up happening is um, That second class was arguably like the best class I've ever taken in my life. He was like the coolest professor that had the coolest accent I've ever heard in my life. It was like a soft Christoph Waltz kind of accent. It was really good. And the way he just presented this information was amazing. He was like such a good lecturer. He like took every single question head on, didn't skirt anything. It was awesome. Um, But one of the things we talked about in that class, as we talked about, like, what it means to be saved and who saved us, was we talked about Jesus and the the nature of Christ. In other words, like, what exactly or who exactly was Jesus? And if you grew up in the church, you knew that there's this sort of tension between God was a human, but he was also God and kind of, you know, this kind of a tension in between the two. And one of the things we are talking about um, as referred to Jesus' temptation and we talked about, like, you know, how was Jesus tempted, and what was, what was so difficult about Jesus' life? And one of the things that the professor brought up is, especially in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. If you remember, just after he gets baptized to start off his ministry, he goes on a 40-day fast in the wilderness, and then he's tempted by the devil at the end of these 40 days, at like his weakest point. And there are sort of three iconic temptations that the devil makes. A... Like, make bread out of this stone because you're really hungry. Jump off this temple and, you know, save yourself by calling upon your authority. And the third is, bow down to me and I will give you all the world. So he says all this. And, you know, for me, reading this, I was like, you know, Jesus is hungry, yeah. But, like, he's God. Like, I'm sure he's fine. And the other two, I, I don't know, I didn't feel like they were that big of a temptation considering that Jesus was God. And one of the things that the professor brought up was you have to keep in mind that throughout the entirety of Jesus' time on earth, he had access to his divine powers, but chose not to use them. And this is revealed later on towards the Garden of Gethsemane when he's arrested. He's arrested, and Peter, one of his disciples, thinking he has to defend his friend and rabbi and savior, he cuts off the ear of one of, of the priest's guard, and Jesus reminds him, Peter, don't do that. At any second, I could call on a legion of angels and I can get out of here. I'm choosing not to do this. And the professor went on to to remind us that at no point in Jesus' time on earth did he ever use his divine authority or power for his own sake, for his own comfort, for his own means. It was always for the sake of others, to bless others. And all this power and authority that he had was constantly used in life of service to others and the kind of... The parallel that was made was in the same way that Jesus would not turn this bread into stone and use his own divine powers to satiate himself, but he would do that to feed 5,000 plus people that came to listen to him because he had pity on them. And there's this strong parallel that he drew with this very eye opening experience and the realization that at any moment during Jesus' time on earth, from the very beginning, to, to the very end, as he's, he's humiliated on a cross and stressed, at any moment he could have tapped out and said, Okay, that's enough. At any moment when he was being rebuked by the Pharisees, like imagine being Jesus and being disrespected by the Pharisees and being told, Jesus, you don't really understand the Bible. When Jesus, like, I literally wrote this Bible. Like, I wrote this and I'm the main character in this, and you're telling me how to study this. At any point when he had was living a life of basically like a homeless nomad, had no earthly comforts. He said, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but me, I'm going to ask around to find a place to sleep at night because I, don't, I have no earthly comforts. At any point of having the discomforts of a human body, like I don't know if Jesus ever like, had to throw up or like, go to the bath, all that stuff that we humans have that Jesus now had to deal with because he was in an earthly body, he could have been like, forget it, this is gross, this is disgusting, this is humiliating, I am out. Like, it reminded me that at any point, Jesus could have tapped on and said, okay, I actually, I don't think this is worth anymore. I've been through a lot, and I tried my best, but forget it. It's not worth it for you guys. It reminded me that all the stacked-on emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual pain and suffering that he faced in the last few days of his life were voluntary, and that he chose to go through this because, again, The mission was on his mind. I'm here to become that kernel of of wheat. I'm here that in my life, that in giving my life, in the giving of my love and fellowship to you, that you guys may have life in what I have done. The realization that all of this could have been avoided for Jesus. That going into this week, he knew. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew the pain and suffering he would go through. He knew the, the humiliation. He knew the betrayal he would face. And he was stressed, yes. He was uncomfortable, maybe even nervous, scared, didn't want to do it. Maybe so all these, some combination of all those emotions. but he chose to go through these, because for whatever reason, Jesus thought this was a worthwhile endeavor, and that in doing so, and continuing on, and Jesus continuing on with these events, even though he knew all the things that would happen, it brings one last parallel into the picture. I found it interesting that in this passage of John chapter 12, Jesus specifically name drops Satan. Or depending on the translation, it says the prince of this world or Satan. And in doing so, I feel like when you look at, when, when Jesus brings Satan into the conversation, he says all these things are gonna happen, but beware, be on the lookout, right? The prince of the world is coming and he will be judged. It brings one last parallel because I feel like the events that Jesus was, was looking forward to later in this week was in direct opposition Like, you cannot help but compare Jesus to everything that Satan stood for in this moment, especially in that last week of Jesus' life. He makes it very clear that everything Jesus does is the direct opposition, that Jesus himself is the direct antithesis of everything that Satan stands for. Like, the origin of Satan comes from, I don't have and I want. I don't have the power, the authority, the worship that God has, and I want it. And I'm willing to create chaos and destruction in my pursuit and fueling my pride to have what God has. And Jesus' life and ministry on earth is all about I have and I will give my own life, my love, my fellowship that you may live. Jesus came to earth and although he had everything in his power, he lived a life of peace, of helplessness, of meekness, of humility for the sake of of others that as satan's primary motive was to fuel his pride i must uplift myself i want more jesus came to earth and did not see equality with god something to be used to his advantage but made himself nothing and took the nature of a servant in every aspect of his life during this final week jesus highlights the stark opposition that he is in with satan he says the prince of the world is one way this is what he is this is his character and this is who i am I have power. I can do these things. But I'm choosing to humble myself to the point of a servant, of becoming nothing and obedient to God. Ellen White, in her own commentary on this passage in John chapter 12, says this, if you can get on the screen. Um, from Desire of Ages, she says, "...the life spent on self is like the grain that is eaten. It disappears, but there is no increase. A man may gather all that he can for self. He may live and think and plan for self, but his life passes away, and he has nothing." The law of self-serving is a law of self-destruction. And again, this is her kind of commentary on what Jesus talks about in the kernel. And I think this is doubly important as it's highlighted, that when you look at the law of self and people gaining for themselves and the storyline of kind of what Satan and the world stands for, it's all about you. You take care of yourself. You do what you want to do. Satan fueled his pride. He tapped into Eve's pride and her knowledge of the garden. I need to take care of myself. I need to do for myself. I need to gather and plan for self. But in these last moments, in the crucial moments of Jesus' life leading up to the death and resurrection, all Jesus thought about was you and me. What can I do for you? How will my pain and suffering benefit and bring joy and hope to so many others that are not myself? And I read this passage, and the thought that comes to mind for me in kind of lieu of what this series is about is, wow, Jesus is awesome. And in a more pure sense, like this, I'm glad that someone like Jesus is who I call God. I think there's something about the selflessness of what Jesus embodies, especially during this last week, where you can't help but be inspired by what he does for you and for me, that this is the God that I serve, that this is the God that I am more grateful to follow, this is the God that I can surrender my will with, this is the God that I want to be like. Someone like this, someone with this kind of character, this level of power, but humility and selflessness, like we as humans can't help but be a little bit inspired by what he has done. That this is the God that I serve. That someone like this, someone that in anticipation of his own pain and suffering thought not of himself, but thought of the good that it would do for you and for me. This is the God that I serve. And if there's any part of you that sees this part, and as we continue on this series, that's, that's inspired by like, wow, I can't believe this is the life that Jesus lived. I would like to live like Jesus. He gives us the blueprint where he says, the rest of his life. Whoever serves me must follow me and follow his example of living life for others, of giving of yourself for the benefit of others. Of those around you, and I imagine that for a lot of us, a lot of people in this room, this is something you have experienced for yourself. And if you do, you know how memorable and changing and influential it can be when somebody goes out of their way for your benefit. Um, I, I first moved up to Portland about four years ago, and I didn't tell anyone I was going to tell the story. So I'm—I feel like it'll be okay. Four years ago, and I came here. Um, very, um, like, fresh out of life. Like, I just came out of college. I didn't know too much. Um, I had done very, 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 very little formal ministry. The only formal ministry I had done was here, like, three months before I got hired by here. And even during that internship, it was like, let's take a chance, like, experiment on on this kid. Let's just give him a chance to, you know, be mentored under Pastor Chris and learn about how church works. And when I first started and I moved up to Portland, it was, like, a very... um, Like a very nerve-wracking experience for me. I don't know if any of you guys remember the first time you like left home and maybe you left home and and moved somewhere else. It's a very like foreign, foreign concept. All of my friends were still in school. They were either back in undergrad at Andrews or they are in grad school in Loma Linda. They are all kind of in the same area. And it was very, very like it hit me in the first few months of me moving here like how little I knew and how much I did not know. And it was, like, very much out of my comfort zone. Um, And when I first, first, like, touched down, like, Pastor Chris picked me up, um, I had, like, nothing. I literally had, like, a suitcase and, like, a tub and, like, a backpack. And that first week or so, I stayed at Dan and Esther's house when we lived in Happy Valley just as I was looking for a place to stay. And I remember, like, I think we had talked a little bit before, like, hey, like, I'm coming in, thanks for having me, all that stuff. And, like, kind of, like, what I needed to figure out during that week. So that week, you know, the first few weeks, I'm like doing ministry, but mostly trying to figure out my life. Like, where am I going to stay? How am I going to get around? Um, I want to say I was borrowing Ken's minivan at the time, but one of the first things that I had to do was um, I had to get a car, and I had to find an apartment to stay in. Two things I had never done before. Like, I would driven a car, but I'd never purchased a car before. I've lived in a home and an apartment. I've never like found one for myself. And if you've ever done this, it's like there's so much to take into account that maybe you had not taken into account, which was kind of where I was. I was like, where do I start? Like, do I just ask Google? Like, how do I, do I just ask, do I call somebody? And I remember um, when I got there, um, Dan had told me that he had already taken the liberty to kind of do some research for me, spent a lot of time, like, hey, I've looked into like the car market, and he asked me like, what was your budget? What was your price range? Let me look around for you. And then... While I was staying at his house and, like, Esther was cooking for me, all these, like, very Instagrammable breakfasts that I had every morning, Um, he drove me to, like, a few, like, dealerships. One was in, like, not close, like, in Beaverton. And here, it was, like, February. It was freezing. He was driving me around, like, helping me look for a car, sitting in there with me, helping me not get scammed by these people. And, like, and he, you know, they'd be like, any questions? I'd be like, nope. And Dan was like, yeah, we have a few questions. Let me ask. (laughs) Right? Like, and he, you know, the, the dealer, like the salesman would be like, all right, does that sound good? I was like, that sounds good. They're like, that does not sound good. Let me ask some more questions. I'd be test driving a car. I'd be like, I think this is fine. And Danny's is like, isn't it pulling to the right? I was like, I'm going to guess, but like, you know, you can pull it back. And there was so many moments where I was like, wow, if this man was not here, I'd be scammed. Like I would not have a car. And like it hit me afterwards because at the end of all of this and you know he drove me to all these different places spent time like his own time doing research for me because i did not even know what to look for um i ended up like just not i ended up buying a car that he did not recommend like this totally different car right like totally like something else using kind of the guidelines he gave me but it hit me afterwards um because after i got the car then i i found an apartment and even that where I remember I walked into his house like, hey, I, you know, I'm so excited. I can move out of here now. Thanks for having me. I found an apartment. And he's like, where? And I showed him. And then he was like, why don't you read the Google reviews? And I did. And it was like, the first one was like, my car got broken into. I've been carjacked. And I was like, okay, I have not found an apartment. Let me go back. And it hit me that first night as I like lay on the floor of my apartment. Like I had an apartment now. I had a car now. Like how far out of the way people had gone for me to get to where I was at that point. And really, really, from that point forward, so much of my interaction with people here has been such a blessing where I felt that people have gone out of their way for my good, for my benefit. And I'm sure that every single person in this room, if you took a second, could think of someone or a place or an instance Where somebody inconvenienced themselves, took it upon themselves, took the effort and the cost of whatever it was on themselves to make your life better. And I guarantee you, it was such a big positive influence for you. Because for me, like I still vividly remember like laying on the mattress on the floor, looking at the ceiling. And like my home was furnished by like everyone at church. And like I had so much and there were so many people that took me out and like shopped for me. And like you need this, you need this. Like I don't think I do. You do. You need this. You need this. There was so much of that that happened in that transition to me moving here for someone that, I don't know, it hit me that I, what, who was I to you really at that point? In a lot of ways, especially for like Dan and Esther, like their kids were not in the youth. And, you know, I was just some 21, 22-year-old that was not from here. That was just some dude that was living in their house and they were feeding me and taking care of me. And I think something about that aspect of love, of living for others, living with others in mind and not living for yourselves, it, it moves us in such a way. It inspires us. Think about any, any movie that you've seen where that character says that line, right? They're, they're, in, a, they're, in, a, they're in a place of trouble, and one person steps on and said, you guys go ahead. I'll buy time for you guys, right? That everybody, you get kind of emotional, and that person stays back, sacrifices him or herself to buy time for everybody else. Like, there's so many movies and stories where that... Something about that really moves us as humans. It brings you to tears. There's so many different examples of, you know, I don't know if you watch like Inside Out, there's that iconic scene where Bing Bong, right? Bing Bong and Joy are together and Bing Bong's like, oh my goodness, only one of us can make it out of here. And he sends Joy up and then like there's this really sad moment where like Bing Bong like, oh, he's sad and he disappears. And there's something about that idea of somebody doing that for you, of somebody sacrificing for your behalf. And in a lot of ways it's like the ultimate form of love that Jesus then shows us at the end of his life on the cross, where he looks around at you and me and is reminded of sinful humanity that by all accounts and purposes did not deserve to have the savior of the world die on their on their behalf. And he thinks of all the good his suffering will do for us. All the hope and the joy and the love that will be instilled in our lives because of the suffering that Jesus was willing to go through. That he loves us at the cost to himself. And I just want to remind us, Rock Fellowship, the central part of our our mission statement, or one of the, the first parts of our loving statement is to create a loving community. And I'm sure some of you have been on both sides of this, where being a loving community to somebody else is costly to you you have to go out to truly love on somebody in this community. You have to go out of your way. And some of you on, some, on the same time have been on the receiving end of that. I know I have. I don't know if you've ever been sick at Rock Fellowship, but I'm telling you right now, I eat much better when I'm sick at Rock Fellowship than when I'm healthy because then the meal train comes in and people come with all this good food. I'm like, dang, I could be sick for a little bit longer. This is very nice. This is very nice, right? But if being on the receiving end of that is just so, there's something about it that you just feel this is, this is how we humans were designed and created to live, to give and receive and defer love to one another. But I want to remind us again, as Pastor Chris mentioned earlier on in this year, of this mission of loving everybody always, of being that loving community, that in doing so we follow Jesus' example in the last week of his life. We love others even at a cost to ourselves because we remind ourselves that's how we were designed to live. That's the example that Jesus gave in the last week of his life and that's the example Jesus invites us to follow. That in doing so, in loving others even when it costs to ourselves, we're able to inspire change and change the lives of those around us as Jesus did for us during that last week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, are truly unworthy of, of the love that you've given us, Father. And maybe we will never truly understand everything that you went through during that last week of your life, Father. But I thank you that you are the God that you are, that you are a God that we can be proud of, a God that we look at and can be inspired by the life that you live, not just the teaching, teachings that you give us, Father, that we can look, look at the life that you lived on earth, the actions that you took, and be inspired to love as you did. Father, we thank you for the gift that you've given us in your grace. You've given of your own comfort that you took on the pain and suffering for yourself so that we could be with you, so that we can have that hope and that faith in you, Father. We thank you so much for this undeserved grace that we have. We praise you and glorify you and lift you up, Father, in all that we do. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.